read in verse 22 in just a few minutes. Father, I pray today that we would see from your word the lessons that are being taught. We would see from the life of Gideon, God, how we can go from a zero hero, but we can go from a hero back to his very quickly. I pray today we would understand that truth. We would know, we would grasp, we would take to heart the fact that in our life, our motivation, our drive should be you and you alone. In Christ's name, amen. Charles Bukowski, he's a poet. He once said this, he says, success is always dangerous. It can make a jerk out of anyone. Uh, I tend to agree with that. And that's true for Christians as well. Uh, every Christian, and let's face it, we're tempted in subtle ways to take personal credit for what only God's grace can produce in our lives. And if we're not careful, folks, we begin to think that all the blessings, that all the success in our lives, you, and I'm going to stop right here for just a minute. Maybe you're saying, preacher, I don't have any blessings. I don't really have any successes. Really? Are you a child of God? Are you a Christian? Let me ask you what I've asked before. Did you wake up this morning walking this side of hell? Then you're blessed. You're blessed. And you need to remember that. Now, it, oftentimes we can take the blessings of life, the successes in life that God has given to us, and we say, well, obviously God approves of who I am because He has endorsed what I'm doing. He's pleased with that. But we could be wrong, folks. You see, listen to me, any success in life or ministry should never be interpreted as an endorsement of our character. It needs to be understood as a revelation, of fuller, a fuller revelation of God's character. It's not because of our goodness, but it's because of God's grace. All the blessing you receive, all the success you experience in life, it says less about your goodness and a whole lot more about the grace of God. You realize countless times, I know in my life, and I think it's true for all of us, when God blesses us abundantly, even though we have been selfish, we have been hateful, or lustful, or prideful, arrogant, or greedy, God doesn't bless you because of those things. He blesses you in spite of those things. Why, uh, why does God do that? Because, folks, God's grace is not a result of you or me, it's not a result of our awesomeness. It's a result of God's awesomeness. When you experience God's blessing when you're not faithful, when you're not humble, when you're not obedient, when you're not godly, it's an expression of His faithfulness, of His patience, love, His tenderness, and His compassion. Blessings and the evidences of success should not be seen as God's full endorsement for everything that you are and everything that you do. The reality is this, and I'm going to be quite honest with you this morning. Most of us, I'd say probably all of us, we grow deeper during times of adversity in our life. Do you agree with that? Say amen. Well, here's another reality, and this is going to be a little harder to swallow. Not only do we grow deeper when there are adversities in our life, but I'm a firm believer we grow dumber when there's prosperity in our lives. I mean, folks, success is seductive. It ignites our pride. It stunts our faith. 
We're going to see that in the life of Gideon this morning. Now last week in Judges 7, we saw that General Gideon was blessed with a great victory, an incredible victory that could only be attributed to the power and to the grace and glory of God. The Israelite army's on one side of the field, 32,000 men. Uh, the Midianite army's on the other side, 135,000 men. And God tells Gideon, your army's too big, I need to whittle them down a little bit. So God takes quite a few of Gideon's soldiers away from him, and he whittles it down to where it goes from 32,000 men facing 135,000 men to 300 men facing 135,000 men. So the odds are now 450 to 1. You say, that is impossible. Yes, it is for man, but it's absolutely perfect for God. Because Gideon learned that day that God plus no one else always equals a majority. And you know what happened? The Israelite army won the victory, and God wanted it that way, but God wanted 300 instead of 32,000 because He didn't want the Israelites to be tempted to say, hey, look what we did. They learned a great lesson that day as they stood on the sidelines. Not one Israelite wielded a sword. Not one Israelite soldier killed one of the enemy's soldiers. God did all the work, and what God did was throw the whole Midianite army into chaos, into panic. And the Bible says that they begin to kill one another. And of 135,000 men, 120,000 slew each other in the camp. 15,000 escaped. And we're going to talk more about those in just a minute. But before we get into chapter 8, this morning I want to remind you of a couple of foundational truths that you need to take to heart. One of them, we last week, and that truth is this. God often weakens us before He uses us. Do you remember me saying that? Why does God do that? Because, folks, we like to be strong. We like to be confident. We like to be prepared. Too often, we're like the Israelites. We're prone to credit our skill or ability, our intellect, our experience for our victories and successes that we enjoy in life. So, for God's glory and for our good, God often weakens us right before He uses us to ensure that we're fully going to trust and depend on Him in the battle, and then when the battle's over with and the victory's won, that with joy we're going to give Him the glory for the victory. Now I've used this verse the last two weeks. It's the third week that I have used this passage of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 9. The Apostle Paul is praying to God, and he has the Bible says he has a messenger sent from Satan, a thorn in the flesh that's sent to buffet him. Whatever it was, it was something to keep Paul humble. And Paul asked God three times to remove it. What did God say to him? My grace is sufficient for you. And God goes on and says, For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, Well then, if that's the case, then I will glory all the more. I'll boast all the more in my weaknesses, in my infirmities, so the power of Christ might rest on me. Because I realize when the power of Christ rests on me, then am I truly strong. I told you last week, if dependence is the objective, then weakness is the advantage. If the objective is for us to be dependent upon God, then our human frailty, our weakness, is an advantage. I want you to listen to what author and pastor Paul Tripp said. He said, it's not our weaknesses that limits the work of God in our life. It's the delusions of our own strength. We don't like weakness because it makes us feel like we're not in control. And that's the whole point. We're not in control. We are to be under control. God's control. God's strength is made perfect 
and our weakness. That's the first foundational truth. The next one we're going to cover today, the second foundational truth, is the greatest threat, and I want you to listen to me, the greatest threat to your dependence on God is your current success in your life. If we're not careful, we'll allow success to feed into the illusion of our own strength. And what we'll do, we will, we, the more we succeed too often, even in the spiritual world, the stronger it makes us feel, and the stronger we feel, the less dependent we are upon God for the next battle. Success, now don't misunderstand, don't hear what I'm not saying, don't misunderstand what I'm telling you. Success is not bad, but it can be dangerous. And I want you to get this. Understand, Christian, you are saved by grace. Amen, you know that? But you're not just saved by grace, you succeed in life by grace. Everything you have, everything you are, is because of the gracious hand of Almighty God. You say, I work for all I had. Who gave you the strength, the ability to work? God did. You say, no, I've done it myself. No, you didn't. I've told you many times, once you even the next breath you breathe is because of the grace of God. Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller says, if you let success go to your head, failure will go to your heart. Now most of us, what we need to learn is, we need to learn to lean even on God during the successful seasons, during those spiritual highs in life, because if we don't, we're tempted to take credit for what's happening. We're tempted to trust ourselves and try to take control of what's going on. And when we do that, that's when disaster is going to strike. That's what happened to Gideon. In Judges 8, Gideon is riding a spiritual high from this great spectacular victory that God has given to him and to the Israelites. Now, unfortunately, what Gideon does, he lets God's success get to his head and failure begins to grip his heart and begins to mark his life. And Gideon goes from hero to zero and he does it rather quickly. And, and I think what we have in Gideon in this passage is a negative example of some positive lessons of what we need to do when we are riding high on that spiritual, riding on that spiritual high, riding high on what God has done for us. Number one, let's learn this lesson. When you're riding on a spiritual high, on the blessings God has given you, you need to expect relational conflict. It's going to happen. But how you respond is where the difference is made. You need to expect relational conflict, but be humble not prideful. Look at chapter 7. Let's start reading verse 22. When they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword. And I'm reading out of the NASB this morning. When they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as, as, far as Bethshita toward Zerera. As far as the edge of Abel Mehola by Taboth, the men of Israel were summoned from Nephtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Verse 24, Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Bethbara and, and the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the wine press of Zeb, while they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, from across the Jordan. Now the last part of Judges 7 explains the aftermath of the great victory I was talking about a while ago. And it's really, it's a, it's a mop-up expedition. The vast majority of the Midianite army were killed, 120,000 of them. 
15,000 of them escaped. Now Gideon, he wants to finish the job, so he starts out chasing them. The problem is these guys are on camels. So they couldn't catch them. So what does General Gideon do? He radios ahead. Now back in that day when they radioed ahead, the way they did that, they found the fastest runners and they sent them out across country with a message. And he contacts the, uh, he contacts the Ephraimites. Now Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, they're the Israelites, and he tells them basically cut off the Midianites at the past. And the Ephraimite army, they do their job. They capture two Midianite leaders. Oreb and Zeb. Now the Hebrew names is significant. One means the raven, the other means the wolf. And so they kill the raven at the rock and they name it after him. They kill the wolf at the wine press and they name it after him. Then they cut their heads off and bring their heads to Gideon. You say, wow, how brutal. Yeah, that was warfare in ancient days. And when you think about it, warfare is brutal. But that's not the part I want you to get. The part I want you to get is that God, once again, gave a glorious victory, a success to Gideon and to the nation of Israel. Now, at this point in time, after these great successes, these military campaigns that God has given them, the victories, you would think that these two tribes, these two Israelite armies, they would join together. There'd be a whole lot of celebrating going on. I mean, there'd be a lot of singing. There'd be a lot of hallelujah shouting, saying, God is amazing. Our God is great. That's not what happens. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this thing you have done? They're talking to Gideon. What is this thing you have done to us? Not calling us when you went to fight against Midian. And they contended with him vigorously, or they reprimanded him sharply. The King James said they did chide him uh, sharply. So what's going on with this? I mean... Do you think they'd be happy? Victory's been won, but they're not. Well, you've got to understand a little bit of history of the nation of Israel, the children of Israel at this time. The tribe of Ephraim was the most prosperous, the most powerful tribe in the nation of Israel. You remember uh, Joshua, the one who led the children of Israel into the promised land? Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim. Both tabernacles God had Israel construct for worship, we're in the borders at this time. We're in the borders of Ephraim. So the Ephraimites, they were a lot like Texans. They were pretty proud of their heritage. Now notice, they're not real stoked about Gideon's victory. Why? Because their feelings are hurt. Because their feathers got ruffled. They were not invited to participate in the war. Now we know, of course, why they were not invited. Because their prideful, arrogant attitudes would contaminate the victory. That's why God didn't invite them. God used the lowest and the least to demonstrate His power and His prominence. Not only are the Ephraimites unimpressed with God's victory, but they are livid at Gideon's success. Look again at verse 1. Notice that phrase. Uh, reprimanded him sharply or contended with him vigorously. They literally, what that means is they jumped all over Gideon. They were saying, why in the world would you leave us out? Do you not know who we are? We're the Ephraimites. Why did you not call us? How dare you go to war without checking with us first? We would think you'd know better than that. I like the way one preacher puts it. He said, when God starts moving, there are those who complain they are left behind and left out. But yet, if they were allowed to participate, they would surely undermine the cause. You know, I have learned over about 30 years in the ministry, there are always people who show up after the fight's over with, after the victory's been won, but they want to show up and they're quick to tell you how you should have done it. That's what's going on here. But here's Gideon. He's got a great opportunity. He's got an opportunity to humbly give all the praise, all the glory, all the honor to God, to tell the whole amazing story. 
I mean, you'd think he'd say, hey guys, let me tell you what happened. I was scared. I was hiding in a wine press. And God found me. God told me, go and tear down that altar to Baal. He said, I put out a fleece. And God proved to me that He was sovereign over all. He said, man, God took a ragtag group of 300 men and He stood with us against 135,000 and God got the victory. It was time for Gideon to say, it's all about Him, not me. I'm weak, but He's strong. But Gideon doesn't do that. Instead of humility, and I'll, he uses flattering words. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 8. But he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Instead of boasting about God, what does he do? He brags about them. Why does he do that? He does that so he can avoid their anger by feeding into their pride. He says, what are you guys talking about? I've done nothing compared to what you've done. You've got the heads of the wolf and the, the, the raven right there in your hands. You guys are awesome. What would Israel do without you? Now, I want you to think about something. Flattery, that's the opposite of gossip. Now, you know what gossip is? Gossip is saying something behind someone's back you would never say to the face. Well, flattery is saying something to somebody's face that you'd never say behind their back. And the Bible says flattery is wicked. Gideon is not impressed with these guys. He's afraid of them. So instead of standing in faith because of God, he's standing there overcome with fear. Instead of trusting God and saying the right thing because of fear, he uses conniving ways to avoid the conflict. You ever done something like that? How many of you have had this happen? You have failed, but God offers, He, he presents another opportunity for you to get it right. I've been there I don't know how many times. That's exactly what happens with Gideon. Look at verses 4 through 9. Almost immediately this happens. He comes face to face with another conflict. Verses 4 through 9. Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over weary yet pursuing. He said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me, for they are weary, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna. Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. The leaders of Sukkah said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands, that we would give bread to your army? Gideon said, All right, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will trash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. He went up from there to Penuel, and he spoke similarly to them. And the men of Penuel answered him, just as the men of Sukkah had answered. So he spoke also to the men of Penuel, saying, When I return safely, I will tear down this tower. Now, skip over. Well, let's, let's hold it right there for just a minute. No, let's go ahead. Skip over to verse 16. I'm trying to get cut a little bit off here. Look at verse 16. It says, He took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and he disciplined, or he punished the men of Sukkah. With them. And then verse 17, he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Now, think about this. If you don't know geography and the history of the time, Sukkah and Penuel were small Israelite cities and they sat close to the Midianite border. So for seven years, every time Midian invaded Israel's territory, who do you think were the first two cities that got hit? 
It was Sukkah and Penuel. They're weak. They're powerless. Their leaders are like, well, good luck, Gideon. When you catch up with them, we'll join you. Because if you don't catch up with them, we still have to live next to these guys. You remember what Gideon said when the Lord first called him to lead Israel? When he was hiding two weeks ago, we talked about it. He was hiding in the wine press, afraid of the Midianites. And God called him and said, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, who are you talking to? You can't be talking to me. What did he say to God? No, God, I am the weakest person of the weakest family of the weakest tribe. Spiritually speaking, at that moment, he was just like the cities of Sukkah and the cities of Penuel. He refused to help God, but what did God do? God showed him grace. God had patience with him. God loved him and showed him that. Now, he's not the least of any family in Israel. Now, Gideon is the greatest of all Israel. He's the hero of Israel. So now he can demonstrate to everyone else what God's done to him, the grace, the love, and the patience that God shows to him. That's not what Gideon does. Instead, he punishes and he kills. And I want you to think about this. You might have missed this. The first people that Gideon kills was not enemy soldiers. It was his own people. That's what a prideful heart will do for you. Ephraim was strong, so Gideon, he chose flattery over faith. Uh, Sukkah and Penuel, they were weak, so he chose dominance over compassion. And understand me, both of these outward actions show an inward pride. Pride gets you to react selfishly to whoever is in front of you. Humility, it helps you respond rightly no matter who it is that stands in front of you. Remember, Gideon is an imperfect deliverer who actually is a type and a glimpse of the perfect deliverer that's to come. You remember when Jesus victoriously walked from the Garden of Gethsemane? His face was resolutely set toward the cross. Who was the first group he run into? It was the strong, the Pharisees and the Romans. But Jesus, he faces them with humility and honesty. He doesn't cower and he doesn't use flattering words. The next group Jesus was confronted with were the weak, scared disciples, those that abandoned him. Well, he doesn't lash out at them. Instead, he offers compassion, grace, and forgiveness. New successes bring new conflict, and they're going to reveal the state of your heart and how you respond to it. So to those stronger, do we react out of fear or faith? To those weaker, do we stress position or compassion? Next point I want you to see. When you're on that spiritual high, when by His grace God has blessed you, He's brought victory into your life, one of the first things you need to do is inspect or evaluate your personal motives. Why you do what you do. If you're supposed to be serving God, this is a good point to think about. Why do you do it? Why do you do what you do? Is it because it's God-honoring or it's self-serving? Look at verses 18 through 21. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said, They were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. He said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives. If only you had let them live, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise, kill them. But the youth did not draw a sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. Then Zeba and Zalamunna said, rise up yourself and fall on us, for as, uh, for as the man, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalamunna and took the crescent ornaments, which were on the camel's necks. Was Gideon right for executing these two pagan leaders? Oh, absolutely, 100%. If you go back and read in chapter 1, you're going to see that God pronounced judgment on these wicked nations because of their sin and their rebellion, and God was using Israel to carry out his sentence. Israel's motive for clearing out the promised land was to be their love for God, not their hate 
not their spite for the inhabitants. But what was Gideon's motive for killing these two pagan leaders, these two pagan princes? He asked them about some men that they killed while they were raiding the city of Tabor. They said, well, honestly, they look a whole lot like you. How does Gideon respond? He said, that's because they were my brothers. You killed my family. Maybe Gideon said, my name is Gideon. You killed my brothers. Prepare to die. Maybe he said something along that lines. What I want you to get is this, folks. Gideon's motives... What was in his heart comes shining through. He said, if you'd let my brothers live, I would let you live. But because you killed them, I'm going to kill you. So Gideon does the right thing, and this is what I want you to get. He does the right thing, but he does it with the wrong motive. He does it for the wrong reason. It isn't about God, it's about Gideon. It's not about righteousness' sake, it's about revenge' sake. This is about not God getting what he wants, this is about, this is about Gideon getting what he wants. So let me ask this question, Christian. Does God really care why we do the right thing just as long as we do the right thing? I mean, do motives really count? Some, yeah, and some of y'all are pretty quiet. Let me put it to you this way. Does it matter to a husband if his wife does not have an affair because she's afraid she's going to get caught or because she loves him and desires him above all? I mean, does a husband say it doesn't matter that she didn't do it. All that matters is that she didn't do it. Of course it matters. Let me put it this way. Would a wife get all giddy and happy if her husband come home and he had a flowers in his hand, but he threw them down on the kitchen counter, and he said, these were half price. I got these for you, so now maybe you'll get off my back for a little while. Now, I don't think that's going to make her warm and loving at that point. Matter of fact, I can assure you it would make my wife warm and loving at that point. Listen, when a right action is not linked to a good motive, there's something broken. Something is wrong. Jesus taught us the same thing in, in our relationship with him, did he not? Jesus didn't say, it's your duty to follow my commandments. What did he tell us? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me. Listen to me, friend. Love is the reason. Obedience is the action. And our lives as Christians, it's not one or the other. It's one that leads to the other. Love will always, always lead to obedience. And the more we grow in our love for Christ, the more, we'll have, uh, the more joy we'll have in finding and keeping and following His commandments. Of course, this is all made possible when God gives us a new heart. When we surrender our lives to Christ and by faith we trust Him as our Lord and Savior, we get that new heart. Only a new heart can produce a transformed life. Do you remember how David prayed in Psalm 51.10? He said, God, create in me a clean heart, renew in me a right spirit. A clean heart enables our motives to match our actions. Now let's cut through the chase. Let, let's be honest. If we're not careful, we can act just like Gideon, can't we? You say, oh, I'd never do that. Oh, yeah, by all outward appearances, we're doing what God wants. But we know, and God knows the real reason, the real motive of why we're doing what we're doing, and it's not that pretty. Let me illustrate it to you like this. If your body is sitting here in church, but your mind is at work or on the golf course or somewhere other than right here, right now, with a desire to meet and fellowship with God, let me ask you, do you think that makes God happy? I mean, you're in church, you're doing what's right. But it's not the right motive. Let me put it like this. <laughs> if your lips are singing, we sang some worship songs a while ago. If you, your lips are singing, your mouth singing those worship songs, 
But you, in your heart, there's complaining, there's bitterness, there's resentment. Does authentic worship really happen? No, absolutely not. So number one, when you're riding on that spiritual high because of God's blessings, one of us, <coughs> we should have already figured this out. We're all blessed. Amen? If you're a child of God, you are blessed. Don't ever think you're not. So when you're riding high on that blessing, expect that conflict, but you respond by being humble, not prideful. You need to check your motives. Make sure that what you do, and if you say you're serving God and working for God, living for God, then you need to check your motives and make sure the reason why you're doing it. Is it God-honoring or self-centering? And then here's the third thing. You need to reject spiritual compromise. And God blesses you, say God elevates you to a position, maybe as a pastor, maybe serving in the church in some way. You need to understand to reject. You must reject spiritual compromise. You have to get this from your head down in your heart. It's about servanthood, not kingship. Look at verses 22 and 23. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son. For you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Man, that sounds great, doesn't it? Not so quick. Look at verses 29 through 31. Then Jeroboam, which remember Jeroboam means Baal conqueror, that's Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Now listen to me, in that day only kings had that many wives and that many children. Gideon said he didn't want to be their king, but he sure starts acting and living like one. Gideon's theology, what he said he believed, it does not line up with the practice of his life. Now he rejects kingship with his words, with his mouth, but with his lifestyle he's living like a king. You say, preacher, how do you know that? You don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, I do, by one verse. Look at verse 31. What did he name his son that was born by the concubine? Abimelech. Do you know what Abimelech means? My father is king. There's a subtle hand, isn't it? My father is king. He no longer wants to be a servant. He wants to be a king. Look at verse 24 through 26. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from the spool, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelite. They said, We will surely give them. So they spread out a garment, and every one of them threw an earring there from his spool. The weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides that, the crescent ornaments, the pendants, the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the neck bands that were on their camels' necks. Now he said, I don't want to be a king, but he's sure acting like a king. He's taking tribute like a king, all the gold ornaments. He's taking the earrings. He's taking the purple robes. Now purple was the color of royalty, but it gets even worse. And I thought about this. Do you remember back in Exodus 32 when Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments? What does Aaron do? He lets people convince him and he takes the spoils of Egypt and the gold and he makes, he constructs and builds a golden calf for the people to worship. That's what's about to take place here. Look at verse 27. Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophrah. 
and all Israel played the harlot with it. Uh, all Israel played the harlot with it there, so that it became a snare to Gideon and to his household. Let me explain. I'm going to start wrapping it up here in ephod. If you don't know what that was, that, that was an ornate vest that was worn by the high priest. It was used when they uh, to stand before God on behalf of the people. And it was used to seek God's will for his people. Now, this ephod was only to be, number one, worn by the high priest. Number two, worn by the high priest when he was in God's presence. Number three, worn by the high priest in God's presence when he was at the tabernacle, which was in Shiloh. Other than that, nobody else was supposed to touch it. Don't miss this. God's success in Gideon's life brings Gideon fame and fortune. But look what happens. Instead of honoring God, he begins to honor himself. He uses this fame and fortune that God has blessed him with. And instead of blessing others, he uses it to build his own illegitimate place of worship. And he uses it to make his own illegitimate instrument to determine God's will. So here, Gideon's not just living like a king. He's not just living as a priest. He's substituting himself for God. He's saying, I'm the only one that you need to come to if you want to know God's will. Now let me ask you, what happened to Gideon? Apparently he got a taste of glory through success and it went to his head. Do you realize that Gideon is the only judge of Israel who not only delivered God's people from the bondage of idolatry, but during his lifetime led them right back into idolatry again. In weakness, when he was weak relying on God, he became the Baal conqueror. But in his own strength, relying not on God but on himself, he became an idol maker. You see, Gideon may have passed the test of adversity, but he definitely flunked the test of success. Look at verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore, and the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Remember what I said at the beginning of the message, success and blessings are not an endorsement of your character, they're an expression of God's character. So even after Gideon and Israel, all the wrong that they did, turn their back on God again, God still blesses them with 40 years of peace. God's faithful even when we are not. I want you to remember these words from, from J.C. Ryle, a great preacher of yesteryear, preaching over Gideon. He said this, The best of men are men at best. Like us, they're all broken sinners in deep need of the grace of God. That's true for all of us. Folks, today we ought to learn from Gideon, but we must look to Jesus Christ. Gideon and his sinfulness failed to secure salvation for God's people. But Jesus, in his sinlessness, he went to the cross. And he declared from the cross, it is finished. The price is paid. The debt's erased. The victory has been won. Our focus in life, our motivation in life, should continually be on and about Jesus Christ, not self. Not self. Remember the lesson of Gideon. Because of the grace of God, he went from a zero hiding in a wine press to a hero leading the army of Israel, being used mightily by God. But because he became enamored with success and prosperity, he refused to honor God. Instead, he honored himself. And doing that, he went from a hero who saved Israel to a zero who led Israel astray and away from God. And it was all because of a prideful, self-centered heart due to relying on self and not relying on God. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. We're going to have an invitation in a minute. 
in just a moment. But I want to ask you a couple of questions. Who is it that sits on the throne of your heart? You say, well, Jesus Christ does. Well, are you following him? You say, oh, absolutely. I'm following him. Why are you following him? What's the motivation behind it? If it's not love that leads to obedience, something's wrong. Something's broken in your life. If Christ is not on the throne of your heart, then that means itself is on the throne of your heart. There's only two choices. It's either self or Christ. You're either going to follow God or you're going to follow your own selfish desires. Which is it? You say, I don't have time to think about that today. You better take time to think about it. Because you're right, one day there'll be no time to think about it. So right now, in the moment, before Brother Jim and Teresa start to lead us in the hymn of invitation, I want you to think, what is the motivating factor of your life? Is your life about Christ or is it about self? You say, my life is about others. What's the reasoning behind that? I'm asking you to check the motivation of your heart. I'll say it again. Are you in love with Christ or are you in love with yourself? Father, I pray for those who need to make a decision today. They understand the need. They understand the urgency. Father, they would surrender their lives to you today. They would establish that everlasting covenant with you through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?